The Activist Season 2. Welcome everyone to the show. Today we're here with Scott Horton. He's the author of Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism and Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. He's a host of the Scott Horton Show, editorial director of antiwar.com, director of the Libertarian Institute, and he's here today to talk about the end of the world. It has been said that <laughs> listening to Scott is like drinking pure water from a fire hose. So consider this your warning. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. No worries. So that was a little, uh, a bit of your credentials, but why don't you tell people who don't know you what it is you do and what you're all about? Uh, I mean, really more than anything, I do a podcast and a radio show uh, where I interview good anti-war writers. And then, so yeah, I've written a couple of books and all of that, but basically uh, my main thing, if you go to scotthorton.org, I got 5,557 interviews, something I think is where we are today um there going back to 2003 right at the very start of the iraq war second iraq war there my first radio show started in 1998 and i had a couple interviews from 98 99 um and in fact if you go back in if you look at the archive page there if you page all the way down the first one is from 1999 a surviving branch davidian so that'll tell you you know basically what's going on here um and so then you know i had so our, our free radio Austin got raided by the cops. The FCC came and shut it down in 2000, right before the election. And okay, that was 20 years ago, but I'm 99% sure that that's the way I remember it in, yeah. in late 2000. Wow. And then we didn't have another station until chaos radio was uh, first went on the air. I, I'm almost positive at the very end of 2001. And so then I started a show there uh, at the beginning of 2002, which is just me and my friends and playing music and talking shit about the government or whatever. And then it was at the start of the war was when I started the interview show was mm. uh, in 2003. Basically, my friends suggested that, you know, what you should do is should interview all these great people that we're reading and then save those up and post them online. So, you know, I really was... I was always way behind the curve in terms of uh, podcasting technology and everything because I'm an idiot. But <laughs> I've been I've been saving up and posting my interview archives online probably before anybody, I guess. Yeah, that doesn't sound behind the curve. That sounds sounds ahead. And what a good friend that suggested that. Um, yeah. So here, here's a big question for you just before we get into the book. What do you think is the biggest or who do you think is the biggest threat to the United States today? Oh, I don't think that any nation state is a threat to the United States today at all. I mean, clearly, you know, uh, Britain, France, Russia, China, Israel, India, Pakistan have the ability to kill many of us. Or I don't know if the Pakistanis could deliver a nuke this far. The Indians, I think, are, you know, beginning to master three stage technology to be able to actually get a warhead to the United States. Um, Israel has submarines. I don't know if they have, three, I don't guess they have three stage rockets, but they have submarines. Um, you know, Britain and France certainly have three stage missiles. Um, so they all have the potential to kill us. But do any of them mean to? Nah. Um, and, and does anyone have the power to really mess with us at all? No. I mean, even September 11th, 
you know, people compared it to Pearl Harbor. It's the most obvious thing. I thought of it myself a moment after I learned that it had happened. Um, and even had it turns out about 3,500 people or, you know, it was 3,500 there, 3,000 people on September 11th. But the analogy breaks down then, right? Because, you know, people kind of assume that there must be a power equivalent to Imperial Japan out there for us to fight. But if you stop and remember and think about it for a second, they had to hijack our domestic airliners, our <laughs> civilian airliners, to even have weapons to use against us. They had no power at all. Talking about a, a, group, a small group of bandits hiding out who didn't control so much as a district in a province in Afghanistan on the far side of the world from here. And so, yeah, they pulled off a slick one, but that didn't mean that they had real power. But... Americans became very susceptible to the idea that, well, there's this Islamo-fascist caliphate out there or whatever George Bush says about, you know, the evils of the radical Muslims, which is essentially an endless list of people if you want to go after them that way. And so, you know, they framed it that way. But um, does China intend to cross the Pacific Ocean and, and come for us here? Come on. I, okay, let's say they tried it. Couldn't we just pick off their boats before they even got past <laughs> Hawaii? Right? Like, what are yeah. they going to do? It's ridiculous. Nobody's going to do that. And then so that's really the thing, man, is um, people like being afraid. People like being interested in foreign policy. Got to have a war somewhere or something. Right. But just go ahead and spin the globe. We're mm. friends with everybody. Yeah. Even our worst adversaries, supposedly the Chinese. Well, they're our biggest trading partners after Canada. <laughs> Right. And, yeah. and we've gotten along with them since 74 and officially recognized them in 79. So, you know, um, the idea we have to have a Cold War against them now is just crazy. And, you know, I just got off the line right before talking to you with um, I was talking with Doug Bondo, interviewing him uh, from Cato and Antiwar.com. And he's saying, look, the Chinese do bad stuff sometimes and they threaten people. Then he says he doesn't think they're going to invade Taiwan anytime soon. Although probably the more we threaten that, you better not, the more they think about probably, you know, taking it seriously that maybe they need to, uh, you know, sooner rather than figuring out a, a compromise and a negotiated solution later. Um, so, you know, is, is there a potential there for conflict? Sure. But mostly if the Americans, you know, see it through and make sure to turn the whole thing into a self-fulfilling prophecy. And everybody knows too, is there's no joke about it at all. You can read it on the military.com or whatever, that this is all because of the interests of the US Navy and the Air Force and the arms manufacturers who supply them. That's all it is. So, so people thinks, would say though that they'd say, oh, but we need to control the South, the South China Sea. And if they have that, then, then they're going to stop trade to America and we're going to starve and all the rest of it. So what do you say about Go that on. argument? Yeah, no, no, no nation in the world has an interest in trying to halt trade, uh, you know, through the South China Sea or any of that. That's completely crazy. And think about the idea that, okay, fine. Let's say, for example, yes, the middle part of North America must be dominant in the South China Sea and the Straits of Malacca and whatever, you know, um, you know, uh, strategic straits there are in the Red Sea and uh, all through the Straits of Gibraltar and whatever all around the world till when forever. The U.S. Navy is to dominate every major waterway on the planet from now on. 
And how does that make sense to anybody? And why would we presume that the Chinese have an interest in shutting down international trade mm. through that area? Wouldn't that just piss off every other nation in the whole world that currently enjoys trading with them? It's just a fantasy, right? It's a thing about, you know, geez, if I was Chinese and all powerful and evil, what would I do? But mm. yeah, but why are the why those three premises? You know what I mean? Why does it have to be like that? It, it makes no sense any more than the Chinese saying, well, we have to dominate the Panama Canal to keep that thing open. Well, you know what? Nobody's closing it. <laughs> and if anybody tried, we'll handle it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. In fact, so this other argument for the world empire and, uh, you know, our, our global Navy is what about pirates? But you just think about that. Like, what does that I mean? mean? How well equipped could pirates be <laughs> on a on a budget that they have to raise voluntarily from people? Right. Investors got to pay for, uh, you know, at least the, the boat that they take out to seize a better boat. And so every national government on the planet with a coastline anyway has an interest in keeping the sea lanes open, right? And none of them have an interest in getting a, in a war over where you draw the line between who protects the sea lanes from the pirates. Everybody just cooperate on that, just like they cooperate on that right now. You don't need the U.S., you know, overwhelming global H-bomb superpower to lord over humanity for that. You just don't need that. You know, Ron Paul said when he first ran for president in 2008, and I love it, he told the Washington Post, he goes, come on, we could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. Mm. The rest of this, get the hell out of here. You know, we just don't need it. Yeah. And turn the Pentagon into a library like FDR said it was going to be. You know, we'll fill that thing with books. And people can read them. Maybe books about why American militarism fails all the time and wastes so much money. And it's responsible for so much grief and chaos on the planet. Now, I, I do need to point out that I am playing devil's advocate a lot for this conversation. That's fine. So <laughs> you tee him up and I'll knock him out of the park for you here. Okay, so let, let's go to the Middle East. Um, well, metaphorically go to the Middle East. Uh, people tend to have the memory of a goldfish and they would say, well, the war on terror started with September 11. They, they, like you say in your book, the plane seemingly came out of the blue sky and hit the towers and then so we were right to retaliate so where did intervention in the middle east really start and was it really because you know they just hate american freedom and it's just crazy muslims that hate americans what's really going on all right well i mean you could go back to woodrow wilson and world war one because they tilted the balance in favor of the british and the french uh, allied alliance you know, against the Ottomans and they took over the Middle East and that, you know, set a lot of this stuff in motion. But then it was after the end of World War II, it was this kind of a pretty rapid transition period there for just a few years where the European empires turned their, their areas, you know, their colonies over to the United States. And Officially, it was the end of the era of colonization and the end of the era of empires, but it just became different and more informal and more about satellite states and CIA-backed coups and, and you know, military basing, but not so much colonization, right? Nobody thought 
that George W. Bush was going to move a bunch of white people from Arkansas to take over Baghdad and make it, you know, a Christian city on the Euphrates or whatever like that, right? It's not that kind of colonialism, but it's, it's still certainly domination. And they've been messing around all over the place ever since then, supporting coups in Iraq and in Syria and, and supporting the kingdom in um, Saudi Arabia ever since, the, you know, FDR met with them on the way home from Yalta. And, you know, that's, they, of course, backed the um, coup d'etat in 1953 against the democratic government in Iran and in, reinstalled the Shah Reza Pahlavi in power there. And so in my book, I basically start the story in 79, which means a, a brief detour back to 53, that America had backed this right-wing fascist militarist dictator in power. And then when his government was falling apart, he was dying of cancer. When his government was falling apart, this is essentially when Jimmy Carter kicked over the fire ant pile and basically made a series of bad decisions in a very George W. Bush type fashion um, that really set all of these things in motion. So, first of all, he tried to get along with the Iranians, which was the right after the revolution. Well, first of all, he told the French to send the Ayatollah home to Iran to inherit the revolution because the CIA and State Department told him that would be a good idea. And then that was not the, a good idea, you know, the, or at least from their point of view, I don't care. But the Ayatollah was, you know, insistent on maintaining Iranian independence. This wasn't just a revolution. It was a declaration of independence from the United States. Mm. But Carter tried to still work with him. In fact, warning him about Iraq and Soviet, Iraqi and Soviet intentions. Saddam Hussein had just overthrown the government and become the dictator, you know, in his own coup in Iraq next door the same year. And so Carter was warning that Saddam might invade and also warning the Iranians that the Russians might too and passing them intelligence along those lines. But see, popular memory conflates these things together um, and say, you know, but there was this hostage crisis and all the rioting and burning the flag and calling us the great Satan and all this. But that didn't happen until 10 months later. Mm. People always conflate the original revolution with the hostage crisis. But for all those months, the Carter government was trying to get along with the Iranians. What happened was he let David Rockefeller convince him to let the Shah into the country for cancer treatment. And that was taken as a sign that we we're going to nurse him back to health and then reinstall him in power and mm. try to do another coup and cancel the revolution. So that was what caused the riot and the seizing of the embassy where the last coup had been plotted back in 53. So I'm not justifying it, but I'm just saying that was the real context of it all. The American people, all they remember of it in the popular imagination is the mean old Ayatollah and the great Satan and the burning flag. And they hate us. And, you know, I've, I've met I remember I met a guy, an old guy working on my truck's air conditioner was telling me, man, the whole war on term is BS. Bin Laden used to work for our side. And all this stuff, and I don't believe a word of it. And they're just lying, and I hate them, and all this. But Iran, oh, they hate us. They just hate <laughs> us. Oh, they just hate us, hate us, hate us, hate us. For whatever reason, he got a backstory on Osama and Al Qaeda, but he never got a backstory on Iran, right? So for them, it's just irrationality and Islamic fundamentalism and, and all of this kind of thing. But there, of course, was the backstory. And then at the same time, same year, 79. Carter starts back in the Mujahideen, just like my air conditioner repairman said, these guys worked for us. Not just did they start back in the Mujahideen, Afghanistan against the Soviets, but eventually the Arab Afghan army that went there to fight on their behalf as well. 
And they were all supported by America, Saudi, and Pakistan in this, you know, big conspiracy, Operation Cyclone, uh, to do this, you know, under the CIA um, coordination there. And so um, then in uh, 1980, oh, no, so then in 79, Christmas of 79, the Americans succeeded in their plan to provoke the Soviets into invading, or at least that's what they've been trying to do. And I don't know the cause and effect there. It's not that clear. The Americans have been trying to provoke the Soviets into invading and invade, they did Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Yep. And then once they did in Christmas of 79, the Carter government panicked. Here's the thing they're trying to provoke to happen. And as soon as it happens, they go, you know what? If the Soviets rolled into Iran next, then they could have a shortcut around the mountains and could have, you know, a straight drive to the port of Karachi in Pakistan and would this would all and would then dominate the eastern side of the Persian Gulf. There's to be a huge expansion of Soviet power. And so Carter declared the Carter Doctrine in in his overreaction against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that he had been deliberately trying to provoke in the first place in order to bog them down and and you know, essentially give them uh, a failed war, a long, uh, make their war harder, at least. And so, um, as they put it, to give them their own Vietnam is what the Jimmy Carter government called it at the time. So then, in, you know, so that overreaction, he declared the Carter, the Carter Doctrine that said that the entire Persian Gulf now is an American lake. It's like we're talking about with China and the South China yeah. Sea, that this is now American-dominated uh, territory. And as he put it, any attempt by another major power in the world, the USSR, to take control of this territory will be considered an attack on the United States, right? The same ultimatum as if the Soviets roll into West Germany or, you know, nuked London or something that like, no, that will mean a fight with us if you dare to cross that line kind of thing. Same thing for the Persian Gulf, that level of guarantee to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. And then as part of that same doctrine, Jimmy Carter encouraged Saddam Hussein to invade Iran. And that was because Hussein, well, why Hussein did it is because he was sitting on a supermajority Shiite Arab population. He was a Sunni Arab. And now there are Shiites in the Ba'athist government, which was a secular fascist type government. But um, it was dominated by the Sunni tribes and they lorded it over the Shiite supermajority and treated them kind of like second class citizens and all that. But some of them started taking the revolution side in Iran because and so Hussein's worry was that these Iraqi Shiite Arabs were going to choose their Shiite sect over their uh, national sect as Iraqis and their ethnic sect as Arabs and go ahead and side with the revolution. And in fact, some of the um, some of them started to go to Iran to participate in the revolution. And some of the Iranians started coming into Iraq like this was actually happening. So Hussein panicked and Jimmy Carter gave him the green light to conscript all these young Iraqi Shiites and force them into the army and force them to go to war against Iran instead. And he thought it would be easy and that they would destroy the Iranian government. And instead, it led to this massive stalemate war that lasted throughout the 1980s. So now I know that's a lot about Jimmy Carter because the Reagan chapter is short. Reagan continues both of these policies, backing the the. Um, Mujahideen and the Arab Afghan army against the Soviets in Afghanistan and backing Saddam Hussein in the war against Iran, including with chemical weapons. But then at the end of that war, Saddam Hussein gets into a conflict with Kuwait over war debts. And 
I'll skip this part. It's in the book. But suffice it to say, I don't think it really was deliberate. But in effect, they trapped Saddam Hussein and lured him into invading Kuwait and then used that as an excuse to launch a war against him. And I think originally it was just kind of a failure to coordinate. I think they told him he could take the northern oil fields. But then he went ahead and got brave and went all the way to the sea. And it was really the British. It was Margaret Thatcher that insisted that the Americans do something about it and gave what her people said, uh, gave H.W. Bush a backbone transplant and forced <laughs> him to do something about it. Um, and what, so what did she call was, him? What, what was the term that she said? Don't you go wobbly on me now, <laughs> right. Bush. Yeah. Right. Meaning you can't be less of a man than Margaret Thatcher, the female prime minister of England, can you or Great Britain? Right. So and then he reacted immediately. Uh, well, to her. Right. Not to the invasion. At, right after the invasion, they were going to draw the line at Saudi Arabia. They didn't care. It was really uh, after Margaret Thatcher and, and the English had their own interests in Kuwait was all had nothing to do with the security of the people of the United States of America whatsoever or even the free flow of oil out of the region or anything like that. Um, and then but every, they decided to take advantage. The Soviet Union was falling apart and they decided this is how we can expand the new footprint and we can demonstrate for the world that America is now the dominant power and that we will enforce what we say the U.N., says, you know, and it's, you know, our version of their resolutions will be the law enforcement arm of the new world order, they called it and all of these things. And so that was their excuse to go there. And then after the war, they had promised to leave Saudi Arabia and all the bases that they had built up there for the war. But instead, they stayed. And the reason why was because there was a giant uprising by the Iraqi Shiites and the Kurds also against Saddam Hussein. And Bush senior had encouraged it. And given a message over Voice of America and drop leaflets over the Iraqi army divisions, telling them, now's your chance. Take out Saddam Hussein. And they did uh, try to, you know, launch this insurrection. But then Bush and his government changed their mind. Bush Sr. we're talking about now, 1991, in the aftermath of Iraq War I. And, and then they changed their mind. And they let Saddam keep his tanks and attack helicopters and crush the insurrection. Killed 100,000 something people to crush the insurrection. Why they do that? Well, they did that because they realized, what are we doing? We just backed Saddam Hussein for nine, 10 years against Iran to contain the Iranian revolution if we can't overthrow it. And now we're importing the Iranian revolution into Iraq. And as the Shiites are moving to take over the capital city, Iraqi Shiites who had chosen Iran's side in the Iran-Iraq war, they're coming across the border to lead the revolution. Oh, no. So they panicked and they called the whole thing off. And Saddam slaughtered all these people. Then they cry a river full of crocodile tears about what a Hitler Saddam Hussein is and how this isn't their fault or anything. And so, and they essentially pretending that the crushing of this insurrection is to last indefinitely when it was already over, right? But in the name of protecting those they had just encouraged and then backstabbed and betrayed, they now launched what they call the no-fly zone patrols over northern and southern Iraq, which they kept through the entire end of H.W. Bush and through the entire end of the 20th century, all through the end of the Bill Clinton presidency and into George W. Bush. They kept up the constant no-fly no zone bombing of Iraq from the bases in Saudi Arabia. And that was the primary reason that the Arab Afghan army that had fought on America's side against the Soviets in Afghanistan or with American assistance against the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 80s turned against the United States, not for just 
Americans being in Saudi Arabia to trade or anything like that, but combat forces, infidel, white Christian combat forces from the other side of the planet on their, not just their home national territory, but what they considered holy land, the land of Mecca and Medina, the birthplace of Prophet Muhammad and the birthplace of, you know, his aspect of the Abrahamic religions there. And so get the hell off of my lawn. And that was their entire attitude. And they also cited from the beginning um, American support for the Palestinians and not, you know, and, and opposition to American support for, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. American support for Israel over the yeah. Palestinians and, and over the Lebanese. And so not just the Israelis minding their own business, but the Israelis merciless suppression of these people and cited these as reasons, support for dictatorships in the region, pressure on them to keep oil prices artificially low, you know, overproduction to boost our economy at their expense and turning a blind eye, they said, to Russia, China and India in oppressing Muslims. And although Bill Clinton actually supported the Mujahideen in Bosnia and in Kosovo and in Chechnya, took the bin Ladenite side, even as they were attacking the United States all through the 1990s, um, it, you know, the first major one was Rabbi Kahane in 1990 uh, was assassinated, an expansionist Israeli rabbi or an American rabbi who preached for the final expulsion of all Palestinians from historic Palestine and into Jordan. Um, and then the first World Trade Center bombing, the bombing of Americans training the National Guard secret police in Saudi Arabia in 1995, the massive Kobar Towers attack that killed 19 American airmen, 19 American airmen who were there stationed there to bomb Iraq. And they blame that on Iran. The Saudis and the Americans, Louis Free and the FBI and the Clinton government blamed it on Iran and Iranian-backed Saudi Hezbollah for doing it, which is a lie. It was bin Laden who did it, it was making a major statement with that. Didn't get the message because they obfuscated that. So then they did the Africa embassy attacks and uh, the USS Cole in 2000. And, you know, there's just a new story out that the horrible Judith Miller from the New York Times who helped lie us in a war with Iraq she claims, and I believe it because it sure fits, um, that in the summer of 2000, she had a single source story and she couldn't verify it and couldn't back it up. So she didn't print it. But she had a single source story about an intercept, an overheard intercept of Al Qaeda guys talking. And what are they saying? Now, the newsworthy part when this just came out in the media a few weeks ago was that they were warning that something big is about to happen soon. But they leave out the first. That was the headline. But the context was they were saying, yeah, it's too bad that the USS Cole attack wasn't enough to provoke America into invading. But with the new thing coming up soon, that'll do it. Watch. Right. So this is all important. Right. So I mentioned why they were mad at us. It wasn't because we're free. It was because of all these policies, especially killing Iraqis from bases in Saudi, uh, first and foremost. Um, but they had this strategy and the strategy was not to make us to knock down our towers and hit our Pentagon and make us run away crying like little children. You think bin Laden thought that if he hit the Pentagon, that the generals were all just going to roll over and surrender to him or something. <laughs> he was trying to provoke them into an overreaction. That was the point. And it's just like in Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals in asymmetric political action, including terrorism, the action is in the reaction of the opposition. So when John Miller, the ABC reporter, interviewed bin Laden in 1998, bin Laden told him, yeah, I'm going to take on the USA and I'm going to take on the Israelis and I'm going to do all this and I'm going to do all that. And John Miller said that he thought to himself, 
yeah, you and what army, pal? And then, of course, the joke is it's the U.S. Army, right? He's going to use the he's going to bait the Americans into taking advantage of a horrible crisis so that they can do their worst because that was what they were trying to do. And bin Laden's son gave an interview to Rolling Stone magazine in 2010, where he says, when George Bush was elected, my father was so happy. He said, this is the kind of president he needs, one who will attack and one who will break the bank and break the country. And as bin Laden said over and over in the 1990s before September 11th, and as he said over and over after September 11th, the whole game was to bleed America to bankruptcy. We will do to you what we did to the Russians. He always leaves out with American help did to the Russians in the 1980s. And in fact, Andrew Collison from the Wall Street Journal got his hands on a letter from bin Laden to Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban, where he says, I'm really sorry for getting you into this mess. I know you're mad at me for, you know, getting the provoking the Americans to invade and all that. But after all, everybody around here is a faithful Muslim and we're all go to heaven anyway. And so screw that. That doesn't matter. But what does matter is, trust me, even if you were you and I are dead in 10 years, don't worry. In 10 years time, he could have said 20 was, you know, we have a more productive economy than the Soviet one. But you just wait in 10 years, the Americans will be broken and they will withdraw from the entire region in humiliation. And then we can have our caliphate. Then we can have our Islamic emirate. Then we can do things the way we want and declare independence. But the Americans are so powerful. They can always come and bomb our governments off the face of the earth. We have to play a long game, bog them down, bleed them to bankruptcy, just like we did to the Russians in the 80s. Because remember, when the Soviets left Afghanistan, it was right in the middle of the government falling apart, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the wall came down in 88. The red flag came down at the end of 91. So, right, this is the period of transition there. Well, the troops left in 99. Right, this is as the USSR is disintegrating. You know, they lost that war. It was one of the straws that broke the camel's back of, you know, their their giant fool's errand in Afghanistan that they should have never tried to do. And they were ruthless in their war too. killed something like a million people and lost anyway. And um, and so uh, that was the point is they were trying to lure the Americans into overreacting and doing something stupid. Now, that doesn't mean that George Bush is innocent for how stupid he is. Because, in fact, the guy's an absolutely cynical, advantage-taking liar, which is what bin Laden was counting on. And then here's the most important point here, is that, you know, if Afghanistan is all they ever wanted, and then as the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit put it, Iraq War II was the hoped-for but unexpected gift to bin Laden when W. Bush invaded there and turned all of Western Iraq into bin Laden University for five years there and built up Al-Qaeda in Iraq, became this giant movement that ended up growing into ISIS and the Islamic Caliphate of 2014 through 17. It was a huge blunder. In turn, if you thought the American mission was counterterrorism, it was a, which it wasn't. But if you thought that that was what they were, you know, was supposed to be their priority, Iraq War II was, he said, uh, the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit said, was the hoped for but unexpected gift to bin Laden. Well, then if that's true, what about when all the fighters from around the region that went to Iraq War II to fight, like guys from Libya and Syria, when they came home, Obama took their side. And right at the time that Obama was killing Osama, 
in the spring of 2011, he was taking his side. The Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, Ansar al-Sharia, al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb in their war in Libya. And then as soon as they were done lynching Gaddafi on the side of the road and installing a permanent civil war in power there, they started a mission to take all the jihadis and all the guns and send them off to the regime change in Syria, which failed to overthrow Assad, but did succeed in ending up creating the Islamic Caliphate, uh, which was al-Qaeda in Iraq grown into a real state. And they seized all of Eastern Syria in 2013. They rolled right into Western Iraq in 2014 on America's dime. America and our allies dime is for supporting their side of the movement. And, uh, you know, and I skipped the part where the reason they did that is because in Iraq War II, even though they had empowered the bin Ladenites to such a great degree, they were on the losing side. The Americans have put the Shiites in power there. But they always regretted that because that helped the Iranians, not their Saudi friends and the American alliance system. So now they were trying to get rid of Assad to try to take Iran down a peg since Iran's too big to tackle head on. Well, if we gave them Baghdad, we can take away Damascus. But the Al-Qaeda guys had different ideas. I mean, they would have liked to have taken Damascus, but taking over Fallujah and Mosul and Tikrit was much easier. Those are predominantly Sunni towns and basically unruled at the time, wide open territory. And so it was much easier for the caliphate to go east into Western Iraq than to go west to Damascus. So they just went where it, that made it easier. And then at that point, Obama had to launch a whole other war, Iraq War III now, to destroy the Islamic caliphate. And that was the war that, that Donald Trump finished. So, and I'm skipping a few things in the story, but essentially I think you can tell that this is all Jimmy Carter's fault. This is all the fault of the American national security establishment who keep switching sides back and forth over and over in this war, who pretend to not know that they were being baited into catastrophe um, so that they could get away with accomplishing their, their short-term career goals, mostly, you know, as individuals. It's the worst case of the public choice theory, right? Where there is no national interest. There is no wise public policy. It's just what bureaucrats want. And what they want is for themselves. And so that's how we're leaving, you know, not only are we leaving Afghanistan right now with, you know, completely beaten with the mission of absolute failure and people, you know, placing bets on how long before the city of Kabul completely falls to the Taliban. And we're doing so with no accountability whatsoever. It's not anybody's fault. In fact, there was even an article in Politico where, well, yeah, no, I mean, we could never win the Afghan war. But still, it's not like it's anybody's fault for not realizing that before a couple of years ago, because that's when I realized it was a couple of years ago. <laughs> like, screw you, man. A lot of people said so all along. 20 years of this. And, and for all the people who supported the war, all the people on the National Security Council in the Pentagon who implemented this war, all the elected leaders and politicians and congressmen, everybody who pushed all this, if it's all failed after 20 years, that means that it could have never worked at all. And it never did. And they were all wrong the whole time. And so who's Jimmy Carter other than the W. Bush of the late 1970s? And, and who's H.W. Bush other than the W. Bush of the early <laughs> 1990s? Right. And these guys and, and who's and, you know, who's Bill Clinton other than the butcher of Waco? You know, these people are they don't know what the hell they're doing if you're trying to be charitable to them that they're trying hard. They don't know enough. 
to do the things that they do. And then their attempted corrections for their previous failures only make matters worse and worse and worse and worse. And there's just no arguing around it. I mean, um, I guess I hadn't heard from him on my latest book about the entire war on terrorism, but Colonel McGregor um, from, you know, probably uh, people have seen him on uh, Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. He's kind of this anti-war conservative old army colonel and, uh, you know, a decorated hero of Iraq War One, and the guy who's like designed the battle plan for if we ever have to fight Russia and Eastern Europe. I mean, this is the guy they ask how we're going to do it. And he endorsed my book about Afghanistan and said, this is wrong. He recommended it to the Army War College and wanted it on their reading list. So these guys have to take their medicine that this is how badly they failed. And um, it is, it's a damn disgrace. And, and the thing is, too, is they knew they were lying all along. And I'll refer you back to Dick Cheney on September the 16th, 2001. He goes on the Tim Russert show. And he goes, look, this guy, Bin Laden, he wants us to withdraw from that part of the world. And I'm just telling you, that's not going to happen. And then later, Tim Russert says, why are they doing this? And he goes, oh, well, freedom and democracy, Tim, freedom and democracy. (laughs) It's like, no, dude, you just said it right there. They object to the middle part of North America having a military empire in their country which is reasonable enough. And in fact, as I document in the book too, as soon as they invaded Iraq, they pulled the bases out of Saudi Arabia and moved them up to Iraq. And I quote uh, Paul Wolfowitz himself saying, this is one of the great advantages to the Iraq war. You know, he's like coming up with all his talking points for what's good about the Iraq war. What's good about the Iraq war is we can get all our troops out of bases in Saudi Arabia where they were provoking bin Laden to come and knock down our towers. Oh, but no, we'll just move them into Iraq and nobody will have a problem with that, right? You know, never mind that. But he's admitting it. He's saying that was part of his motivation for the war was to defang al-Qaeda terrorism by getting American troops off the Holy Peninsula, said the architect of Iraq War II. So he's absolutely half right about that. You can take it from him. So it, it seems like the, the kind of shadow player in all of this or the shadow enemy has been Iran because you know, it seems there's a fear that they're going to have dominance in the region or something. I'm not really sure what the fear yeah. is there. Um, but, you know, as you said, uh, after we try to install a democracy in Iraq, they actually got their guy in. And and now there's this whole nuclear uh, deal that's going on and they're in it, they're out of it. And Biden so far has uh, ordered two airstrikes on Iranian-backed facilities in Syria. So mm-hmm. what's going on with Iran? What do you see happening in the future? Um, I don't see them as a nuclear threat, and I'm, I'm sure you don't. But again, I have to play devil's advocate. Uh, sure. Is Iran a problem? Yeah, well, so, I mean, really, Iran is the reason for all of this stuff in Iraq and in Syria and the rest of it, right? So the original clean break plan of the neoconservatives from the 90s was based around the idea that Iran backs Hezbollah in southern Lebanon by way of Syria. And we want to break that chain. And then they stupidly got talked into believing that it that the key to that would be to get rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And then, you know, they hoped they could go on to Syria or even Iran next. But basically, it's a recognition that they can't attack Iran, which declared independence in 1979, which they can't stand. And for them, you know, if September 11th wasn't the first day of history, then the day the hostages were taken in Iran is mm. the first day of history. 
And, you know, so they're still the bad guys and we're the ones on the defensive kind of thing and holding grudges from back then. When, by the way, Ronald Reagan sold Iran missiles just a couple of years after that, right? So you would think that, hey, in statecraft, there's not feelings, right? You know, business is business. We could get along with any Ayatollah. We can get along with any king in Saudi Arabia. We can get along with any Ayatollah in Iran, right? Simple as that. Um, you know, yeah, in Iran, they hang people. Yeah, in Saudi, they cut their heads off. So anyway, um, and in America, they, you know, just lock them in solitary until they tear their minds apart. So anyway, you know, whatever, you pick your poison. Um, so, um, but the thing of it is that, so that was part of why they got rid of Saddam is they thought that that would give Jordan and Turkey sway over Israel and then sway over the Shiite clergy in Najaf in southern Iraq, who would then break Hezbollah away from Iran. The whole thing is a stupid, you know, Rube Goldberg type contraption that, of course, did not work out. And um, as we talked about, the Iranians got the overall inherited all the influence in Iraq. Well, that's not how it was supposed to be, that America would fight a war for people who hate their guts and don't need them because they're the super majority of the country. Oh, see, I really dropped the ball on my explanation of Iraq War II. Because I did mention, I did talk about the uprising in 91 that they encouraged and then betrayed. When W. Bush invaded in 03, he picked up right where his father left off. And he took that same Shiite revolution and put it in power. That was really the big deal. And that was why the Iraqi Sunnis were pushed into alliance with bin Ladenite types was to try to repel that. I kind of skipped that part of the story of my narrative. So just, Everybody copy and paste that in your brain back 10 minutes and it'll fit and it'll be great. Um, but, but so then in 2006, uh, George W. Bush's government embarks on what they called the redirection, which was essentially based on the admission that they had screwed up and they put Iran's best friends in power. And we want them to need our guns and money more than they need their kinship with the Iranians next door. But it's, that safe bet is not really working out. And we can't even appoint a prime minister without getting the Iranians to agree who we want the prime minister to be. So, yeah. so now what we want to do is we want to do a redirection back toward the Saudi king and the rest of America's Sunni alliance in the region, which includes Israel and Turkey and Jordan and, and all the Arabian states there. And so, but that meant, you know, going back to doing what Saudi wants means going back to doing what bin Laden wants, because other than, overthrowing the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, bin Laden would also be perfectly happy to see the governments in Libya overthrown. Muammar Gaddafi, who had put out the first Interpol warrant for him in 1996, right? And who had, you know, was a the bitter enemy of the Libyan Islamic fighting group, right? Um, he would have loved to see Bashar al-Assad overthrown. The Alawite, uh, you know, secular fascist dictator of Egypt aligned with the Shiites and the um, Christians and the Druze and, you know, everybody that the Bin Ladenites who are these radical Sunni chauvinist types hate. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, culminating, as I was explaining, in the rise of the caliphate. Now, all this was done, which was headed by a guy, this guy Baghdadi, might as well have been Bin Laden. It was just two years after Obama killed Bin Laden. He puts his clone in power in Mosul to rule over this caliphate. It's just incredible to see. Um, and But that's the explanation, is they hate the Ayatollah more for the hostages in 79 
than they hate the Bin Ladenites for the Twin Towers in 2001. Or for that matter, for being part of the Sunni insurgency that killed 4,000 of the 4,500 Americans who died in Iraq War II. And in the long scheme of things, the war on terrorism, the actual one where they ever were focused on fighting Bin Ladenites, well, that was just a blip. The policy almost unbroken from 79 is to back these terrorists all the way through. The only exception, even when they were attacking us all through the 90s, Bill Clinton kept backing them anyway. Then they attack us on September 11th during W. Bush. And then uh, they're part of the Sunni insurgency, killing American troops in, in Iraq during W. Bush. And then American barks on the redirection back for Al-Qaeda again during W. Bush in his second term. And this is why Obama did it in Syria, because he's W. Bush. That was it. He picked up the same policy. And, and so the war on terrorism is over. In fact, that was what they said when they went after Libya was, well, what is overthrowing Gaddafi for a bunch of radical Sunni bin Ladenite veterans of Iraq War II have to do with the war against Osama bin Laden? Nothing. Let's go. Hooray. And they went ahead and did it. That's what the Saudis wanted. Now, that wasn't the war against Iran. Saudis just hated Gaddafi anyway for making fun of them for wearing dresses and selling out the Palestinians <laughs> and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but then, the, you know, the war against Syria was all about attempting to correct this mistake. If W. Bush gave them Baghdad, let's see if we can take Damascus away from them. And, uh, you know, Barack Obama, if people doubt that, go read Barack Obama in his interview in The Atlantic in March of 2012. The headline of the article is called, As President, I Don't Bluff. And Jeffrey Goldberg, by the way, is sort of the Israeli commissar of American media speech. Um, and in this case, was acting sort of as an intermediary between Barack Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu. And so the purpose of the interview is Obama telling Goldberg, listen, would you please tell the Israelis, I swear to God, I really mean it. I will go to war against Iran before I let them get a nuke. I'm just not doing that, bro. Promise me you'll tell them for me. That's the purpose of the whole interview. OK. And in the interview, Goldberg, again, essentially speaking for Likud, says to Obama, hey, don't you think that if we overthrew Assad in Damascus, that that would help bring Iran down a peg? And Obama says, absolutely. And Goldberg says, well, isn't there anything that you can do to speed this process along? And Obama says, well, essentially, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Right? He says, I, I could tell you, but your classified clearance isn't high enough to know, Jeffrey. Mm. So sorry. The joke being that the regime change operation had already begun about a year before. And America was arming al-Qaeda terrorists on the ground to overthrow Bashar al-Assad, who say what you will about him. Measuring on this curve, you know, grading on this curve. This guy wears a three-piece suit and shaves his chin every morning. The guys we're backing are Osama bin Laden's stepchildren. So how mm. is this even an argument at all? Mm. And this continues to this day. There's a brand new public relations campaign to try to rehabilitate uh, Abu, uh, what the hell is his name? Abu Muhammad al-Jalani, the leader of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is al-Qaeda in Syria. And they're trying to launch, you know, they even had him on front line and dressed. They must have been listening to my show. They dressed him in a three piece suit, <laughs> although they didn't get him to shave his beard off. They dressed him in a three piece suit and put him on front line and said, look, everybody, here's your moderate rebel. You know, as though this is still after this already blew up into the caliphate once. 
You did that, those great little um, videos for each chapter of your book. And I think you have a, a photo in one of those chapters of, of that, like a before and after picture of him all dressed up for oh, his uh, interview, which is yeah, which it's was just really amazing great. to see. Yeah. Yeah. And I interviewed the frontline reporter who did the whole thing. And I told him how he was, seemed to be doing public relations for Al Qaeda and I didn't appreciate it. <laughs> well, what was anyway. the response to that? I was being way too hard on him. It was funny at the end of the interview. I mean, he kept his composure. I'll give him credit. You know, uh, he's a professional. Martin Smith is his name. Uh, put in my name and his, you can hear it. Um, but at the end of the interview, it was funny. He said to me, God dang, Scott, this you're coming on like Fox News. <laughs> and what was funny was I kind of misinterpreted it because he meant I was being so hard on him. I was like Sean Hannity shouting him down, which it wasn't that bad. But that was what he meant. But I said, no way. Fox News agrees with you that we should support Al Qaeda in Syria. Yeah, I don't you know, I don't agree with them about that. You're on. You're the one who agrees with Fox News. I'm the one who's, you know, against all this stuff. Mm. And then, oh, and he said he said you, he said you sound a lot more like Fox News than Pacifica, which is, you know, I'm on the radio in L.A., which is, mm. you know, the leftist right. anti-war station. And and I said, oh, no, everybody on Pacifica was against backing Al Qaeda in Syria. I'm pretty sure, you know, I was, so I was sticking to the subject matter. He was just going for the tone, you know, yeah. but yeah. I don't think I was that rude to the guy. I mean, what the hell? He's committing treason, essentially. So who <laughs> care. Yeah. Yeah. Why be polite? Um, so we're we're essentially just out of time, but I do have a few short questions uh, from the audience that I have to okay. ask. Uh, the first one is, what is your favorite song and why is it War Pigs by Black Sabbath? <laughs> That's actually a very good song. And I've seen Black Sabbath, not just Ozzy. I've seen Black Sabbath play nice. that song uh, live in San Antonio at the Alamo Dome before. I'm very happy and proud to say. Nice. Um, and it is a great song. I can't say it's my very favorite one. But I'm not sure I have a very favorite song anyway, but that sure is at the very top of the pile somewhere. Yeah. Very nice. Um is the U.S. done in for the trade war? Should I just move to China before it's too late? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know, man. Like I said, I was just talking with Doug Bondo about this, and I think, you know, for various reasons, American military reasons, but also the shady ways that Chinese businesses do business has really helped to short-circuit a lot of the economic interdependence that we had going there. And it really threatens war. It's like an on-off, you know, either we're, we're heavily into, interdependent on each other or we're headed straight toward conflict. And so, you know, all good libertarians and peace-loving people must oppose tariffs and trade barriers and promote, you know, open trade between uh, Chinese and American businesses and people. And, uh, you know, for whatever the Chinese, whatever role they're playing in poisoning these relationships, they need to get their act together too because the fate of entire cities at a time or possibly even our nations are at stake. And they do have far fewer nukes than Russia, but mm. they have enough to destroy every major city in the United States of America in one day. Mm. Wow. Uh, is this withdrawal from Afghanistan another weapons transfer to create another terrorist haven? No. Um, I think, the, in fact, people want to read up on this it's in the book but i also wrote an article about this for the american conservative magazine called war without a rationale and it's addressing what i call it and others have called it this too i guess the safe haven myth 
the idea that somehow Afghanistan or anywhere else uh, in particular serves as a base for Al Qaeda to attack us. Uh, and a, a terrorist attack could be planned with, you know, during a walk in the park or sitting, mm -hmm. taking bong rips in an apartment somewhere. Um, it doesn't require a safe haven at all. And in fact, you know, I left out in my narrative here, the last big one is the war in Yemen, where just like in Libya and in Syria, America's fighting on the side of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula against their enemies, the Houthis there. So it's pretty crazy to hear the same war party say we have to stay in Afghanistan because of the safe haven myth there, while America is outright fighting on the side of these bin Ladenite crazies in uh, places like Syria and, uh, and Yemen. And, and even then, we're still in the middle part of North America. Somebody's got to let them on the plane to get here in the first place. Um, and they got to be let out of the airport when they get here. And so, you know, I'm not much of a minarchist, but if our government has a role, it's keeping bin Ladenite terrorists out of our country when civilian policing will do, right? We don't need, mm. you know, to murder anybody. Just keep them the hell off the planes that are headed this direction and we're fine. There are like 10 more questions, but we've barely scratched the surface. I encourage people to get the book because when I was reading it to me, I was thinking this would make an awesome modern day Game of Thrones type series because of the characters and the overlapping motives. I mean, in one point you say Saddam was busy writing a romance novel when 2003 war broke out, which is just baffling how, you know, he was the enemy of the free world for that brief time. But um Thanks so much for doing this. Scott has had enough already with this interview, but thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it.